Good morning and welcome to Unlocking Markets, a new RBC Blue Bay podcast. This is the place where we will be looking for to bring you experts across the firm providing opinions on the markets, global policy, sustainability and macroeconomics, and how these feed into our investment decisions. I'm Mike Reed, Head of Global Financial Institutions, and today I'm going to be talking to Mark Dowding, our Blue Bay CIO, about a range of topics that we believe all investors should be thinking about right now, from the risks of a credit crunch and recession in the US to the likelihood of further rate hikes in Europe, plus the impact to global markets if or when Japan ends yield curve control. We will also discuss the state of investing in the UK and finally take a look at what is in store for investors in the second half of 2023. Welcome, Mark. We have a lot to get through today, so shall we just dive in? Sounds good to me, Mike. Okay. The Democrats and Republicans have finally agreed on a deal over the debt ceiling, and we have, according to Joe Biden, averted economic collapse. Hopefully, investors can now return to focusing on economic fundamentals. Given this resolution, can we take a positive view on risk assets, even though yield curves in both Europe and the US remain deeply inverted, which historically is a good lead indicator for an upcoming recession? Well, it's, uh, it's, it's funny you bring it up, Mike. It's, it's uh, one of those topics that is quickly forgotten, isn't it? Things like the debt ceiling will probably be something that resurfaces again in a few years from now. But uh, I think, to be honest, I mean, I don't think any of us really believed that the US was going to default, did we? But um, in terms of um, your, your, your bigger question, which is the, the question around sort of, uh, uh, sort of recession risk, I think the thing that we can see here very clearly is that uh, as monetary policy uh, starts to bite, we are seeing growth uh, and activity in the economy uh, starting to slow. Uh, and um, we, we've also come to learn that there's a lot of lags with monetary policy as well. Uh, a lot of US households will have um, fixed their mortgages at ultra low rates. Uh, and so uh, they've been sort of relatively sheltered from uh, high interest rates thus far in terms of the monetary policy tightening cycle. And as this continues to have um, an increasing effect, we, we do see economic activity slowing. Uh, we do think that the economy in the US is likely to slow to a standstill, effectively move to a technical recession around the end of the year. Um, but all of this said, uh, I don't think at the moment we'd be projecting a very sort of ugly recession like uh, uh, what we saw in 2008 uh, uh, to, to, to sort of uh, think back at that time. We, we're probably looking at an outcome where unemployment goes from maybe three and a half percent up to four and a half, maybe five percent. And against that sort of recession, uh, it's not a it's, it's certainly not a disastrous world. And, and actually, with a, a lot of these thoughts already priced into markets already, uh, we have seen sort of recently how um, risk assets have almost wanted to climb a wall of worry. Uh, uh, to use a, a phrase that we often quote. So this doesn't say that uh, downside risks aren't there, uh, but um, but yeah, it would be uh, uh, perhaps a bit risky uh, betting the ranch on uh, the idea that uh, everything is going to get sort of too ugly going forward from this particular point. Uh, and uh, at the moment, around these sort of turning points in economic cycles, I think the other thing that's smart to say is that we should keep a relatively open mind um, uh, if we speak with central banks, they don't know what's around the corner. Uh, for them, policy is data dependent. Uh, and I think the same is going to be true for us as well. 
Thank you very much. I guess leading on from that, we have seen an increase in defaults so far this year in 2023, which are now running at the highest rate since 2016. We witnessed the high-profile collapses of Silicon Valley and signature banks in the US, as well as corporates such as Bed Bath & Beyond. Given these data points, what are the reasons behind the rise in defaults, and are we at the start of a broader credit crunch? Mm. Well, we're here. I mean, I think the thing to emphasise is that defaults um, uh, over the course of the past 10 years or so have been abnormally low, haven't they? Even through the pandemic, we saw low levels of default, largely because we saw abundant government support on both sides of the Atlantic. So we've lived in a world of abundant liquidity and very low levels of default rates uh, through the course of uh, uh, the last decade. And in many respects, what we're starting to see a bit more of in 2023 is more of a normalization in these sorts of credit events back towards uh, more normal levels that we've seen in prior decades. I'd also say that um, what we're seeing here is very much a function of monetary policy doing its job. Um, uh, when central banks tighten monetary policy uh, in order to ensure and preserve price stability, uh, there's a clear narrative that they want to tighten financial conditions. And as financial conditions tighten, uh, effectively, uh, it's like the, uh, the, the tide is going out and uh, you, you'll actually expose the weaker players uh, when this is the case. So I don't think there's anything unusual, abnormal to this particular point. And I would say that we'd expect and project uh, default rates to continue to rise somewhat further. I think the big question here is whether we end up with a relatively benign recession, um, in which case uh, the, uh, the level of defaults remains relatively contained, or are we going to be facing a much more ugly economic scenario, which could perhaps be the case, for example, if we saw further really bad news on inflation that caused the Federal Reserve to take rates uh, to 6% or beyond, or continue to adopt a very tight monetary stance for a very long period of time. But still, we'd emphasize these as more risk events at the moment rather than a central view. I think, as articulated in the, the last question, I think our central forecast at this particular case uh, would be a relatively mild recession uh, around the end of the year. And against that backdrop, uh, uh, I think, yes, there'll be headwinds for credit markets, uh, but certainly there, there'll be parts of credit markets that already price and discount a lot of bad news, like European financials, where actually we see banks performing very well against the backdrop of uh, higher interest rates needing to improve in terms of net interest um, sort of margins. So not everything in credit is going to struggle in, in this sort of context. Uh, but I do think that we're going to be in a world where uh, sort of using more manager skill to actually pick the parts of the market you want to be invested in in credit, I think is going to be relevant. It is going to be more pertinent than it has been for the last decade. Well, yes. Well, thank you. You mentioned European financials and the beneficial environment for them. So actually turning to Europe now, where companies have been much harder hit than those in the US by the increase in energy prices due to the war in Ukraine. Um, and the EU's biggest economy, Germany, has slipped into recession. But Christine Lagarde, president of the ECB, is still talking of higher interest rates to control inflation. Do you think the ECB will carry on raising rates? And if so, how badly will this impact the European economy itself? Yeah, so, so I think here we, we'd sort of say that when we 
ourselves meet with the ECB, uh, uh, as with certain other central banks, uh, they'll really uh, uh, emphasize to us that actually price stability is is so important as a um, medium-term driver of economic prosperity. Uh, it's really important that they see inflation coming back to target. And they have been concerned that uh, notwithstanding some progress on headline inflation, core levels of inflation continue to remain too high. So there is a, a clear need, a clear imperative to get that level of inflation down. All of this said, uh, as um, economies start to uh, soften, and you're, you're right to highlight the fact that, yes, we, we did see a, a technical recession uh, in, in Germany, in the Eurozone uh, at the start of this year, uh, as, as these um, uh, events come to pass, uh, we, we do think that we're getting close to the top of the rate cycle now, uh, whereas in the US, we, we think our, our baseline assessment might be for one more hike to come. Um, uh, uh, that will obviously depend on the data. In the context of the Eurozone, um, we're, we're looking for um, uh, cumulatively two more hikes to actually take um, sort of fed for, uh, the, uh, the deposit rate in the Eurozone to 3.75%, which is a level that we think rates will probably plateau at for uh, the next six uh, months or, or thereabouts before um, eventually coming down during the course of 2024. So, that would be the trajectory that we're looking for. But uh, I, I think that at the moment, the uh, the ECB reaction function is relatively well understood. Uh, there aren't too many mysteries in terms of what the ECB is trying to do. Um, and uh, it does seem that on both sides of the Atlantic, uh, after having made some mistakes, perhaps, in terms of running policy too easy for too long, uh, notably in 2021 and early 2022, um, policymakers are now... Uh, certainly sort of catching up with where they need to be. Thank you. I guess one country where rates remain very low is Japan, where the Bank of Japan has maintained its yield curve control policy that has kept the 10-year bond yield below 50 basis points, which is hundreds of basis points below the equivalent rate in Europe or the US. Do you think the BOJ will abandon this policy soon? And if so, how much higher will rates rise in Japan? And will this impact global markets substantially? So I think the, uh, the BOJ will need to move off of this policy. Uh, ultimately, yield curve control is a, uh, a very accommodative monetary stance. And in Japan, it was introduced in 2016 uh, in response to really grave threats towards falling prices in deflation. Um, but if we look at where we are in the world today, we, we now see inflation in Japan running north of 3%. Uh, in fact, in June, we're going to see a big hike in electricity prices in, in Japan, which are going to uh, push the uh, inflation numbers higher. So increasingly, uh, the BOJ inflation forecasts, I think, are being uh, really questioned in terms of their credibility. Uh, and of course, the other factor here is that with uh, very accommodative monetary policy compared to what we see in other developed economies, that's putting uh, pressure on the yen uh, to, to, to weaken. Uh, and so, yes, we can see uh, that Japan is going to need to adjust policy. And I think that they should actually be uh, rejoicing in this. Um, I mean, the, the idea of yield curve control is not a, a policy that you want to run forever. It's uh, uh, more of an emergency policy that was introduced. And actually, the objective of the BOJ has been to get inflation to 2% on a sustainable basis. That's a target that we think that they have now attained. And having hit that, they should almost be in a position to exit yield curve control with their heads held high. 
but even in exiting yield curve control, this is only the first uh, of what would actually be several steps that they would need to take before we start talking about higher interest rates in Japan. So we, we still haven't actually sort of uh, uh, broached that particular topic at the moment, but there has to be a path towards normalization because if there isn't, then my real fear here for Japan is ultimately uh, they could find that they're not impervious to the laws uh, of economics. And although they haven't seen any proper inflation for the last 30 or 40 years, uh, inflation could continue to surprise nastily on the upside. And if it does, uh, there could be a need to tighten policy more abruptly, which I think, given very high debt levels in Japan, uh, that would clearly be very problematic if you needed to hit the brakes a lot harder at a later point in time. So we do think that the BOJ would be well advised to get on with it and actually get on with it relatively soon. Okay. Now looking at the UK, where here we are witnessing stagflation with a combination of low growth and stubbornly high inflation. What is your outlook for the pound and UK assets in general? Yeah, so um, the, the poor old UK, I'd, I'd love to be more cheerful. Uh, I, I know that we're getting towards the end of our questions. I'd like to be finishing on a, a, on a bit of a positive note with, uh, with good things to say. But I do think that, uh, uh, look, the, uh, the, the, the macro backdrop in the UK is challenging. It's clear that the Bank of England, having um, uh, had policy too easy uh, a year or two back, is now caught between a rock and a hard place. Uh, they've tended to be a more dovish central bank. Inflation is now too high. Uh, and even as inflation in other economies starts to drop more quickly, we, we actually see um, inflation in the UK stuck at higher levels. In fact, I, I think the government was was asking the, the, the Bank of England to halve inflation from 10 to 5 this year. I think they'll probably do that. Uh, but actually getting it back towards 2% in the UK does seem to be a very distant prospect. Um, and so in in the UK, um, uh, arguably, yes, the, the Bank of England would need to do more if they wanted to do so. But if they were uh, to tighten rates more aggressively, uh, then I think you really run the risk of cratering the housing market. Uh, and actually, that could create sort of financial ruin. So in as much as you're caught between a rock and a hard place, I think that the Bank of England is likely to err on the side of uh, permitting inflation to overshoot higher and for longer than otherwise would desirably be the case. And I think as that um, uh, plays out, I do think that this is going to be a factor that weighs on the pound. Uh, the pound has been holding up pretty well thus far this year, uh, but we, we we would sort of look at the pound on a, a medium-term view and think that the uh, the currency will end up taking the strain here uh, rather than the uh, sort of UK consumer, particularly noting that we're, we're likely to be heading towards elections next year. So, yeah, the UK is, uh, is certainly an interesting macro story uh, and one I think that uh, is rich in opportunity for macro investors to prepare to take a view. Uh, but, uh, but, yeah, it's a, a, a difficult one for sure. Yeah, definitely a difficult one to call. Um, well, maybe here's your opportunity to uh, finish on a more positive note. Uh, so far this year, US, European and Japanese equity markets have all witnessed double-digit gains, whereas bond indices are only marginally positive year-to-date. Do you think fixed-income markets will perform better in the second half of the year? And which risk do you believe market participants are not focusing on sufficiently right now? 
Yeah. So, 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 yeah. As, as we said earlier, it's uh, equity markets have been climbing that wall of worry, haven't they? And and it's uh, interesting looking at the volatility indicator, the VIX, which uh, uh, at the time of recording this is uh, is sitting at around a value of thirteen, which seems surprisingly low, and actually the lowest levels that we've seen uh, since Jan twenty twenty, before the pandemic um, uh, struck us all. So uh, there has been this sort of benign outlook. If anything, there. Uh, they're in. We, we almost think that there could be some complacency uh, embedded within equity markets. I, I do think that part of that complacency could be founded on the idea that everyone seems to have this uh, belief that uh, the recent uh, past will repeat itself into the future, and therefore we will see inflation going nicely back towards a two percent target. I would sort of highlight as a risk, perhaps, that inflation could easily end up being stuck at three and a half. Uh, which actually um, uh, would uh, uh, represent more of a challenge, I think, for long-duration assets such as equities, were we to see that. Um, But notwithstanding all of this, I I think that um, one of the observations that you would have when it comes to fixed income is is that um, we have been sort of through a period where there has been this upward pressure on yields from uh, more sort of restrictive monetary policy, we're getting to a point where that policy cycle is starting to turn. Uh, so even though we think we're, we're going to be some way before we benefit from the tailwind of central banks actually cutting interest rates um, uh, and, and, and the wind won't be on our back uh, for, for, for a good while, I don't think yet, uh, certainly the wind won't be blowing in our face nearly as hard. Uh, and that should sort of create a, a landscape in which we're looking at uh, better nominal returns in terms of a lot of uh, uh, fixed income sectors. Uh, and so uh, I, I think that it certainly is interesting to uh, uh, be investing in fixed income again. I remember joking a couple of years ago that high yield was fake high yield. Uh, I remember saying, how can you be a fixed income investor when there's no income uh, left to fix? Uh, life felt about as miserable as it would be being a Tottenham fan, hoping that they're going to win a trophy, right? Um, uh, it's a uh, I, I know, Mike. Yeah. That I, I'm obviously that that was a bit of a low shot. I, sh- I should have uh, should have held back there, but uh, uh, but no, I won't. Uh, it's, it's Spurs after all. But um, but all, all said and done, uh, look, there, there there is going to be better opportunities, better times ahead. We think in fixed income, and if you can pick your right spots now, I think there are real opportunities to be making money in our asset class, um, and certainly in a world where. Uh, we, we no longer have sort of markets being dictated by abundant liquidity and central banks effectively setting and controlling prices. I think it also is a, a great landscape to be an active investor. So, so um, from that point of view, I think the, the, the future is looking bright, and uh, I'm I'm pretty optimistic about the uh, the road ahead of us. Uh, go on, you, you can say that Tottenham will go win the cup now, or something I, like that. I, I would like to say thank you very much for joining us today, Mark. Um, uh, yes, I think Tottenham's chances are maybe less rosy than fixed income markets at this time. Anyway, uh, if you're enjoying the show, please like and subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. We'll be back next month discussing another interesting topic, so don't miss that. But in the meantime, goodbye and good luck out there. This podcast is issued by RBC Blue Bay or one of its entities. Please check the entire RBC Blue Bay disclaimer at the following website, www.rbcbluebay.com forward slash podcast disclaimer.
This podcast is provided for informational purposes only. It is not intended, nor should it be intended, as investment, tax, or legal advice. This podcast does not constitute an offer to sell, nor is it a solicitation of an offer to purchase any security or investment product in any jurisdiction. This podcast is not available for distribution in any jurisdiction where such distribution would be prohibited, and it is not aimed at such persons in those jurisdictions. Past performance is not indicative of future results. RBC Blue Bay makes no express or implied warranties or representations with respect to the information contained in this podcast, and hereby expressly disclaim all warranties of accuracy or completeness or fitness for a particular purpose. RBC Blue Bay is under no obligation to update the information in the podcast or to reflect changes after the publication date. The information contained in this podcast is believed to be reliable, but RBC Blue Bay cannot and does not guarantee its accuracy, timeliness or completeness. The document is intended only for professional clients and eligible counterparties as defined by the Markets and Financial Instruments Directive or in the US by accredited investors as defined in the Securities Act of 1933 or qualified purchasers as defined in the Investment Company Act of 1940 as applicable and should not be relied upon by any other category of consumer. No part of this document may be reproduced, redistributed or passed on directly or indirectly to any other person or published in whole or in part for any purpose in any manner without the prior written permission of RBC Blue Bay or one of its entities.